great to be with you that last week, if you have missed the last couple of weeks, we concluded our series, What's in a Name, looking through, uh, it was 13 names of God over 11 weeks. And we kind of segued at the end of last week's message into this week's series. And this week's series is called With Us to Redeem Us. And this is going to be our Christmas series. If you've been around for Christmases in the past, you realize I don't like doing traditional Christmas uh, series. Mainly because I look at the month of December, especially every week we get closer to Christmas, is a week where there's more and more visitors that come and want to experience who Jesus is. Or they say, you know what, okay, mom, I'll come. I want people when they walk into our building to not hear the same message they heard last year and the year before and the year before that. But I want people to be able to hear a fresh word that God has for them and it wants to speak to them. Amen? And so this year... Uh, I felt it was a perfect, perfect segue coming off the series of the names of God to look at one more name that will be kind of expanded. And it starts with Matthew 1, 18 through 23, where it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. After her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, the prophet being referenced right there is Isaiah, and it it goes back to Isaiah 7, verse 14. The important thing that I want you to realize with that particular passage is Matthew is writing his gospel to a specific audience. Now, you probably have heard before when you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, there's four different Gospels, there's four different presentations of the Gospels, and that Matthew says this, but Mark doesn't say it, but Luke says it this way, and John says it completely differently. And the purpose behind this is each one of them is writing their Gospel to a different audience. I'll give an example. This morning's message is a prime example of this. If I was preaching this morning's message to the children of this church, I'm going to have to present it completely different, and I'm going to have to leave out information. You're going to understand why in just a moment uh, once we get into today's message, because I'm speaking to an adult audience. If I was speaking to just a youth audience, I might be able to add a little bit more in that I wouldn't give to our kids, but I have to know my audience of who am I speaking to and what am I communicating. So when we look at the, the book of Matthew, Matthew is writing to the Jews. The Jews love the scriptures. They love the prophecies of God. They would only listen to one of their own. So Matthew, as a Jew, is speaking to the Jews in speaking to the religious people of the day. So right off the bat, we see in Matthew 1 where he's referencing about how he is speaking to a prophecy from Isaiah right off the bat. Basically, the introduction of his his gospel is already quoting the prophets. We look at Mark. Mark speaks to the Romans. They were the leaders in the leadership and action impressed them. They wanted to see something happen. They knew nothing of scripture, but they knew everything of power. So to this group comes the action-packed gospel of the powerful ministry of Christ. Everything is intentional. 
Then we get to Luke. Luke was a Greek that was writing to the Greeks. The Greek loved culture, beauty, ideas. Happiness could be found in the pursuit of truth. So Luke fills his book with insights, interviews, songs, and details that would fascinate the inquiring mind. So those three Gospels you'll hear referred to and is called as the synoptic Gospels. That basically they're all looking at and seeing the same Jesus. Then we get John, who kind of comes off in left field a little bit. John wrote to everyone else. See, those are the three main audiences of the time, but John's writing to everyone else. And John starts dealing with issues of revealing who Jesus really is, the absolute power of God in human flesh, who controls and rules the universe that he created. It's no coincidence that the best-known Bible verse, one that shows up at all of the big football games, on the on poster board saying John 3.16, I really wonder if some of those people know what the verse really means that they're referencing, but you see it everywhere. It seems like if anyone knows a scripture from this entirety of this book, it's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I mean, I'm sure we would have saw plenty of signs saying John 3.16 in Ann Arbor yesterday. It was a good day to be a believer and lover of Jesus Christ. Also, if you're a Michigan Wolverine fan, I'm just saying. I'm sorry, I had to fit that in there somewhere. I had to. But John is writing to almost everybody else who's yet to come. Essentially, the entire gentle audience of saying, you know what, you're all welcome into the family of God. The book of Matthew, though, was written so specifically for the Jewish people and in such a way to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, to prove that Jesus was God, and to prove that Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us, so that God could be with us to redeem us. And that's the whole purpose of this series. It really is this idea that Jesus being born as a man is Emmanuel, God with us, and he came to be with us so that he could redeem us. And so when we look at this, you kind of see this back half of chapter 1, and you get kind of excited, this is what's going on. But you go back to the beginning of chapter 1, and we get to one of those things that most of us, if I'm going to honestly ask this, you're going to probably be honest and give me the answer. How many of you like genealogies in the Bible? How many of you do what I, like I used to do? You're going through, you're reading, you get to a genealogy, and you get to... So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. And then all of a sudden you're reading the begats and then you get to the spot where all of a sudden you realize you're like 14 verses in and you have no idea who begat who. And either you do one or two choices. You either go back and begin begatting all over again or you say, you know what, God knows my heart and knows my intent and you kind of keep just plowing through a little bit. I love genealogies. Because God hides some almost powerful, important things in his genealogies that he puts. They're not there by accident. They're not there to bore you. If you do the homework and you dig into it, you'll realize God's actually saying something to us through them. Over and over again. And every time I get bored with one, I'm like, okay, God, what are you trying to say in this one? And so, remember, who is Matthew writing to? The Jews. So I want you to hear the beginning of this, and yes, I did practice this. Yes, I'm probably going to still trip over a couple names, so deal with it. This is Matthew 1 through verse 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, or Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron. I love how I just trip over the one I'm talking about today. Of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the uh, deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Whew, that was a mouthful. But here's the thing, I intentionally went fast because I wanted you to kind of be like amazed by like, that's 14 generations from this to this and this, and that's a lot of names, and those names are a little bit crazy, but I want to draw your attention to five names that are in there. Five specific names that were in there. You see, who was Matthew writing to? The Jews. And at the time where you would have genealogies like this, the first thing that we need to pay attention to is that this genealogy is abnormal. It's very abnormal. Because it wasn't just men. There is five women mentioned in this genealogy. And now as we get to the five women, I want you to realize there's five Sundays, including today and including Christmas Eve, that this series is going to be taking place. And we're going to be going each week over one of those women. Now, if you were going to give highlights of women in the Jewish background to be in this, you might say, let's put Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. They were all Jewish women. They were all Israelites. But those aren't the women that Matthew picks. You see, Matthew, who's writing to a Jewish audience, and this is what I need you to really realize here, is he's picking women, and then he's picking women that aren't Israelites, to put into the genealogy to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. You see, one of the things we need to realize about the book of Matthew, this was not written live action while Jesus was doing things. This was written in approximately the year 85. The book of Acts was written between 70 and 90. So this gospel is being written about the same time as the book of Acts. So that means everything that's happening in the book of Acts, including bringing the Gentiles into relationship with the Jews, Jews is happening at the same time that Matthew's writing all of this down. So what Matthew is doing is not just making the case that Jesus was the Messiah, but that the Gentiles actually get to come along with. 
And he does it in an unconventional way of saying, not only are the Gentiles being brought in, but I'm bringing in the women Gentiles into this mix. And what we're about to find out is he's not even just bringing the well-behaved Gentile women. He's bringing in some that have some backs and backstory, has some problems, has some issues. And he's going to deal with that in this, uh, this genealogy, in this story, especially as we started with Tamar this morning. But before I go into the story of Tamar, I want you to repeat after me. Heavenly Father, your word is written in my mind and hidden in my heart. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. And a light unto my path. I will seek you with all of my strength. My greatest desire is to be a disciple and to make more disciples. I will live my life according to your word. Your word, O oh Lord, is eternal. So we got to... Just like we set up the context of that genealogy, we need to set up a little bit of the context of this particular story. The story of Judah and Tamar is considered a parenthetical story. The reason being is that it is inserted into the story of Joseph. When we get to Genesis 37, we're seeing Joseph in his coat of many colors and about how he's having all these dreams and all these big things are going to happen to him. And his brothers, including Judah, get upset. And his dad's wondering what's going on and they want to sell him into slavery. And you get to this spot of thinking, okay, I want to know what happens. I want you to think of your favorite TV show because all of them do this. They're all guilty of this. At some point in in the... Uh, a season, you get to the spot at the end of the episode, they leave you on this big cliffhanger of what's going to happen next, and then you get to next week's episode, and it has nothing to do with what you just watched. It's this way that they're hooking you into watching, like, an, and then usually what they do is they give you that big episode, that big cliffhanger, and then they might give you another episode, or they're going to tell you, we're going to be gone for two months. And then you're, you're left for two months to try to figure out, like, what is happening? What is going on? Where is this story going? And so we get to chapter 38, and you're expecting to see what happens to Joseph next, and it's not what happens. We all of a sudden get this story of Tamar and Judah. And so it's kind of like, okay, why is this inserted here? When we look at the story today, you could easily say Genesis 38 could be removed and plucked out of the Bible, and most people wouldn't notice. But it matters, and it's important. And when we see it referenced in the Uh, Matthew chapter 1, in this genealogy, it could have easily bypassed Tamar's name, but it doesn't, and it matters, and it's important. So we're going to go ahead and, actually, one more thing I need to say. Part of what sets up this story is in this time period, obviously it was a patriarchal society, so if the, the father would marry off the first son, first daughter, and then they would kind of work down that list, if the uh, the, the wife is unable to, to have a, a child with this husband, the husband dies, then all of a sudden the second son has to be given it, basically the, uh, to his brother's wife. They are to have a child, and that first son then becomes named under his brother. And so you kind of keep this process going. You can say, well, that sounds awkward. That sounds uncomfortable. That would make for some weird Thanksgivings. You're probably right. But that's kind of the system that we're walking into here. So this is Genesis 38, verses 1 through 7. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Aldamite, whose name was Hariah, 
There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb where she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. So that's where we kind of find ourselves here, that Ur has now died. The next in line to marry Tamar is Onan. And Judah did what he was supposed to do. Judah was the good Jew. He was protecting Tamar. And he gives Onan in marriage to Tamar. But Onan is no better than his older brother. Maybe some different issues that are going on, but he knew that his firstborn son would not be his, but would be his older brother's. So he sleeps with Tamar and intentionally aborts the mission early so that she wouldn't have a child. He knows what he is to do, and he decides not to do it because I don't, I don't want him to have my son. I don't want my son to be after my brother. I'm going to do what I want to do, not what I'm called to do. Again, that sounds kind of awkward, but I'm also the one who has to preach it, so you've got to deal with it. <laughs> so what was considered in the eyes of God is wicked, and Onan was put to death. Judah knew that Tamar needed to marry Shelah next, but Shelah was a little bit young. So he tells Tamar, cool your jets, just wait a little bit. When the time is right, I'll give you my third son. Except time goes on and Judah doesn't do anything. Shelah gets old enough to be married, but Judah still doesn't give Tamar uh, or him to Tamar. And maybe he's just concluded that Tamar is bad luck. I mean, he's lost two sons in a row at this point in time who were married to Tamar. Maybe he thinks she's bad luck, doesn't want to lose his third son. But whatever it is, he fails to do what he's supposed to do. So we're going to pick up back in the story in verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. So now Judah is a, is a widower. Judah was comforted. He went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hurrah the Adolamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Let's be honest, this is not a Sunday school story. I referenced it earlier. If I was preaching this exact same message, it is still in the word of God. It's still the full counsel of God. There's still biblical truth that we can pull out. But if I'm teaching this in our, in our kids' classroom now, I've got to really change the way I'm presenting it. But here's the thing that I need you to, to know about this. Why would this be in here? 
Why is this inserted in the middle of Joseph? Why does this story get brought back up again in the genealogy of Jesus? There's a lot of drama that's going on here. There's a lot of scandal that's going on here. There's a deception that's going on here. This person, Tamar, is intentionally included because this stuff is happening. What's one of the amazing things to me is, like, Judah, what, what's wrong with you? Like, this idea of, okay, I get it that your spouse has died. You're off to shear your sheep. And then all of a sudden you see someone, you identify this individual as a prostitute, and you say, like, what can I give you so I can sleep with you? And he doesn't even pay attention to the fact that this is his daughter-in-law. I mean, you can tell how much of an exchange this is. This is nothing, this is not a matter of, oh, I fell in love with her. No, you wanted something from her. Remember, when we get to Matthew, who is Matthew writing this to? A Jewish audience. So when the Jewish people would say, oh, but we're righteous and we're good, and remember the fact that here's, here's Judah, and here's Abraham, and here's Moses, here's all the great heroes of faith, this is a reminder that Judah didn't have it together. That Judah had issues that were going on in his life. Then as the story goes on, Judah doesn't know who Tamar is. In the story, she disappears. She's got his stuff. He kind of says, well, I can't really make a big deal about this because if I make a big deal about this, everyone's going to know this is where my stuff went. The matter is saying like, hey, I can't tell everybody that I lost this stuff or where it actually went, so I'm going to probably have to make up a story of how I lost all my things because I'm, not, I'm certainly not going to say, hey, I slept with a prostitute. I promised her that she could have my stuff. And then when I brought her a a sheep that she would uh, give me my stuff back, he can't tell that story. So he kind of just shuts his mouth and goes about his day. So this brings us now to Genesis 38, 24 through 26. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify these, the the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, uh, Shelah, and he did not know her again. He did not sleep with her again. Anytime you say they went in and they knew, that's kind of code for, like, they got it on. It's the Bible. I, I just, I have to... I'm I'm preaching what it says. Judah is huffing and he's puffing in righteous indignation over the sin of his daughter-in-law. And how many of us do this? That we get so upset about what somebody else is doing and the mistakes that they're making that we fail to look at ourselves and realize the fact that, okay, God, you need to open up my eyes of looking at my own life or what am I doing wrong. Instead of trying to hold everybody else accountable, let's deal with ourselves. Let's take the plank that's in our eye out first before we deal with the speck in someone else's eye. Why is it a plank in our eye? Because it's closer to us. And the thing is, how many of you would want a surgeon to perform on you if they were handicapped because they couldn't fully see out of one of their eyes? You'd want that surgeon to make sure that they could see and fully execute on the procedure before they started impacting you. And it's the same thing for each and every one of us, is that we need to be intentional of making sure that we are right with God before we start attacking other people and saying, well, this is all the stuff that's wrong with you. Because if we are right with God, it completely changes the position and the posture of which we communicate to other people. 
instead of wagging our finger at people and pointing and saying, you did this wrong and you did this wrong and you did this wrong, all of a sudden what ends up happening is saying, hey, I'm a sinner saved by grace as well. And let me just encourage you, this is where I messed up and this is where I messed up and this is where I messed up and this is God, how God pulled me out of it. And as God pulls me out of that, he can do the same for you. It changes the way in which we articulate our conversation. If you find yourself in a spot like Judah where you are huffing and puffing and pointing fingers about what other people are doing, let me just encourage you with one of those stupid old sayings that we, we say all the time. When you point at one person, there's three fingers pointing back at you. Deal with your own junk before you start attacking other people. Because if you do, all of a sudden things begin changing. And here's the thing that I, I kind of love about the story and at the same time it's just the, the irony of it. Listen to Judah's response again. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son. He identifies his initial issue. If he had did what he was supposed to do, then this whole story doesn't happen. And now he doesn't have a son by Tamar. But Tamar got what she was supposed to get. She just got it in a way that she shouldn't have got it. And she shouldn't have done what she did. And Judah shouldn't have did what he did. But ultimately, this is when we go back into this genealogy of Jesus. Let's just go in here for a moment. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. This issue, this sinful issue that's going on. This is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And why do we see this lineage in the, this process of Jesus Christ? Well, one, we see Tamar becomes a member of the covenant people of Israel. She becomes a great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus, which is amazing. But in this story, we see that sin is in that story. We see that there's shame in that story. We see prostitution in that story. But ultimately, we see Jesus in that story. And when we see Jesus in the story of the people, it's easy to, to run through these names and say, oh, yeah, that was a good guy, and that was a good guy, and that was a good guy. You cannot turn your eyes away from the fact that here is an issue with Judah and here is an issue with Tamar, but Jesus still became a byproduct of it. And let me encourage you in this room today, whether you've ever accepted Jesus or you're dealing with your past, you just haven't got past your past, that Jesus can be found in the midst of your struggle and your issues and your problems and can lead you to the greatest testimony that could ever be. You have to let it happen, though. Because if you hold on to your whole past and your story and you never share anything about what's happened, you're never going to get to the other side of things. It gives me hope because life isn't squeaky clean. My life's not squeaky clean. Your life's not squeaky clean. You might think, well, I would love to be in a genealogy like that. And like, I want to, like, Abraham and Moses and David and all these big heroes of faith. Like, I wish I could be Billy Graham or just list the names of, of people, of evangelists and pastors and people of significance in your life. Every person's got their issue. Every person's got their problem. Every person needs Jesus. And Jesus doesn't need to come in this genealogy if there wasn't issues and sin and problems that came before him. So Matthew puts Tamar in the story of Matthew 1, and we start realizing the fact that, hey, we just might need this story here. The common phrase, and I made this statement earlier, that in Genesis 38, you could have left this out. So what does it mean for us that Genesis 38 is put in here? The common phrase that we hear a lot of times is that winners write the history books. 
that you don't hear that the, the winners, like they, they write the history, they write the story, here's the good news, here's what happened, and they kind of just move on. And that the losers are the ones that are always trying to go back and say, well, yeah, this happened, and yeah, that happened, and if, if this would have went this way, if that would have happened this way, then we might have won. You didn't win. At the end of the day, you didn't win. But when we look at this particular story, Genesis 38 doesn't have to go in here. Why did Moses include it? It gives us hope for our own lives. And I would also say it brings even more validity to Scripture. If the Jewish people were trying to make a case of why their God was better than all these other gods, that the Elohim of Elohims that we talked about, the, this God is above all these other gods, this God is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, then why would you include things that make your main characters look bad? Because it's truth. And when we are in our weakness, God's in his strength. And so as we go through this, we're not avoiding issues. We're not sweeping things under the rug. We are dealing with the issues and we're dealing with the topics at hand and saying, you know what, it's right here. We got to do something about it. We have to move forward. We need to help move forward. When I even think of the warming center, just standing there and on Wednesday night, my, my job was, it was twofold. Annie and I helped to make the dinner. And then I stood carrying bags for people that they got checked in. I took their bags and I took them to the room. And it really was a very uneventful job in that sense of just moving bags from one spot to another. But all of a sudden just hearing some of the people and telling some of their stories and realizing that so many people in our country are one or two paychecks away from being homeless themselves. Everybody's got a story. But here's the thing. I know that God is with us because of Jesus, so that he can redeem us and give us a new story. And so when we look at our past faults and our mistakes, that God can do something with what seems like nothing. That when we look at Romans 8, 35 through 39, this is the passage that we see. One second. Get to the right page. There we go. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor debt nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It doesn't matter what your past is. Paul is saying it loudly for the people in the back. No, nothing can separate you. From the love of God. Because God saw you where you were, and he saw the issues, and he saw the struggles, and he saw the Judas in the room who were taking advantage of their position. He saw the Tamars that felt lost and felt forgotten and sent Jesus on your behalf so that he could meet you where you are and redeem you because God is with us. And because God is with us, everything can change. That when we look at our situations, we look at our issues, we look at our problems, they can get awkward at times. They can be sticky at times. There can be struggles at times. If I can have the worship team go ahead and come back forward. And uh, those on the prayer team get ready to come forward as well. Here's what I want to just draw our attention to. When we look at this whole book, 
We see struggles and we see faults and we see issues that are going on. But the thing that I need you to realize is that we can all find ourselves somewhere in that genealogy. If we took the time and spent the weeks to break down every single name in the genealogy of Jesus, you might be able to say, well, that's a good person until we go back and read the details of this is where they messed up. That's a good person. Nope, they messed up there. They messed up here. All of those people in that genealogy desperately needed Jesus to be Jesus. And in our struggles and in our weaknesses, Jesus still showed up for us. Church, this is where I need to encourage you with this morning. If you've never accepted Jesus in just a few moments when the worship team uh, leads us in the song, I Speak Jesus, that we're going to have our prayer team up here. I want you just to come to one of them. They're going to be facing out, so they're going to be really easy for you to identify. I want you just to come and get prayed over that you would just accept Jesus into your life. Those of you else in the room that you say, you know what, I think I got it all together. I think I know this Jesus thing. If God speaks to you, just come to the altars. Forget everybody else. If you don't have it all together, it's okay to not have it all together. The thing that's not okay is to pretend like you have it all together and to keep doing things like you have it all together. And I would even say this, if you're in the room and say, you know what, I just need someone to pray for me, come to one of the prayer team. I don't really care if people think, did they never accept Jesus before? That's not what it's about. Come and get prayed over. Come and say, Jesus, like, I'm going to follow after you. I'm going to give you everything that I have. Because it's all about salvation and repentance. We cannot celebrate the Christmas story and ignore the fact that salvation was needed. We get so hyper-focused on, here's a little baby Jesus, and here's a manger, and gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And we get lost in all these little nuances and details of the story. But we lose sight that Jesus came, not so that we could just celebrate Christmas, but so that we could celebrate the resurrection. Christmas was his introduction on the world platform. But it all matters when he goes to the cross and dies on our behalf and is resurrected again and then is brought up back in the heaven and is coming again. Jesus came in the Christmas story so that we could ultimately celebrate when he is with us and we are with him. The first time Emmanuel came so that we could be with him so he could redeem us. But the next time we're going to go be with him so that we can be with him for eternity. So church, this morning as we worship, I want you to just to worship the way you did in the beginning. And let me just encourage you, challenge you. Um, if you can worship the way you did in the beginning this morning, I don't want to ever hear boring worship ever again. I know it's in you. I, I, I can see that. I can hear that. I can feel that presence. Here's the thing. It's up to you whether you're going to say, you know what, God, I want all of you or I just want a little bit. I can tell you this, like, if my daughters were still in here, they were playing in the basement yesterday when the Michigan game was going on. And Quinn has started something new with me. When either Michigan or the Lions score, something happens, she runs up to me, she's ready. She gets three throws up in the air. And now it's to the point, I can't just like lift her. She wants like, she wants me to let go and we have a ceiling that's high enough that I can throw her and let go. And then we do a, a dance, then I swing her underneath my legs, and then I do one more big throw. And at the end of the game when they've won, I have to do three throws at the end. I can tell you that she has never been lighter than she was yesterday at the end of that game because the excitement level that was within me. Because while the enemy might be able to come up and say, you're a cheater, you're a liar, that there's all these issues with you, when you're at your lowest, 
when everybody's written you off and given up on you, God is still in it with you. God has not forgotten you. God has not abandoned you. That God has your back. So let's worship God like he has our back. We know the names of God. We've just went through 11 weeks and 13 different ones. I don't care which one you need to call out to today, whether you need healing today, whether you need salvation today, whether you need peace today, whether you need joy today, whether you need God to see you today, start calling on those names of God and say, God, I need you to show up today because ultimately Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. So he's here with us. We felt his presence earlier. His presence hasn't left the room. If your mind and your heart is still on God, his presence is still here. It's still gonna go out with you today. It's gonna go out into you, into this world. I will tell you this, this season of Christmas and the season around Easter are the two times where people are most likely willing to come to church, not at an invite of a pastor, not at mailers that churches send out, not at websites, not at Facebook ads, but by the invitation of their friends and family. So are you going to hold on to it and just kind of celebrate and worship here? Or are you going to get as excited about it as I was yesterday when I was throwing Quinn as high in the air as I could? Because my team won. And at the end of time, yesterday's game means absolutely nothing. But guess what? My team's already won. My team's won the, not just the local championship, not a Big Ten championship, not a national championship. He won the eternal universal championship, undefeated, undisputed, and he is coming back again. So church, would you just stand? We're going to worship the King of Kings this morning. If you need to get prayer over, our prayer team will pray over you. But let's just worship the King this morning and give him the attention and the glory and the majesty that he is deserving.